I would invite you to open with me uh, now in God's Word uh, to the Gospel of John. Just a single verse is going to be our text uh, this morning, uh, John chapter 1 and verse 14. John chapter 1 and verse uh, 14. Uh, This morning's sermon is going to be the fourth and final sermon in a brief series that is based on chapters 2 through 5 of an old Puritan book by John Flavel called The Fountain of Life, or its longer title, A Fountain of Life Opened Up, or A Display of Christ in His Essential and Mediatorial Glory. Uh, The first of these sermons was uh, last Sunday morning when I opened up the glory of the pre-incarnate Christ as the eternal Word of the Father. Then last Lord's Day evening, Pastor Rodney preached to us about the eternal covenant of redemption in which uh, God the Father and God the Son and the Holy Spirit covenanted together to redeem a people. And that covenant of redemption stands behind God's great saving work in Jesus Christ. Yesterday in our Christmas Eve service, uh, we briefly uh, considered uh, the great love of the Father in the giving of His Son. Well, today, for the final sermon, we come today to the actual act of the incarnation itself. The other three sermons, as it were, leading us up to that moment when Jesus Christ would be born in Bethlehem's manger. And it is my desire today that you would marvel at this truth of the Word becoming flesh. So John chapter 1 and verse 14 is our text. Let's now hear God's Word. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What a marvelous verse this is. It is actually, as I was reflecting on it, the very first sermon that I ever preached. I preached uh, in the summer after my junior year of college, and it was on this very text of John 1.14. We get to return to it today. Might the Lord bless this word to our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Lord, our God in heaven, we thank you for this amazing, glorious truth, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We pray, O Lord, that these words of astounding, marvelous truth would not come upon deaf ears this day, but, O Lord, that you would make us alive to the wonder and glory of the Incarnation, that we might truly adore the one who is Christ the Lord. O bless us, give us eyes to see, 
our glorious Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you really love somebody, then you will want to know that person. Uh, If you're married and you love your spouse, or if you're a parent and you love your children, or if you have a friend whom you love, then you are going to want to know that person, to know what makes that person click, what she likes or what she desires or what are her dreams. You're going to want to know his life history, his experiences, the influences on his life. You're going to want to know everything. You know, one of the worst things that can be said is, well, this person, my spouse, my child, my friend, is like a stranger to me. Indeed, we want to know those whom we love. Well, dear friends, if you love the Lord Jesus Christ, then you should want to know him. To know him in every way. And to know Christ means, first of all, and first and foremost, to know him for who he is as the God-man, the Word made flesh. You see, the eternal Word taking upon himself human flesh wasn't something for merely a few years that he then discarded in the same way that you and I might discard uh, old and smelly clothes at the end of a day or something like that. But rather when our Lord Jesus Christ, in the fullness of time, assumed to himself a human nature, he did so forevermore. This wasn't something temporary, but rather something permanent. He never would relinquish it, and indeed... The Lord Jesus Christ that you first believed in, the Lord Jesus Christ that you know now, the Lord Jesus Christ that you are going to behold face to face in heaven's glory, is the one who is the God-man, the Word made flesh. God and man in this one glorious person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's this truth of the incarnation, of what it means for Jesus to be God and man that I want to open up for us uh, today and to see something of the glory of it. We're going to look at it under three different headings. Uh, The first thing I want us to see is the truth of the incarnation. Uh, Secondly, the reason for the incarnation. And then third and finally, the glory of of the incarnation, the truth of the incarnation, the reason for the incarnation, the glory of the incarnation, as we seek together to behold our Savior, the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. Well, first of all, today, uh, the truth of the incarnation. Our text, John 14 says these very simple words, but yet I think there are a few words in all of Scripture that are more profound. The Word became flesh. Every part of that brief sentence is full of meaning. 
It speaks, first of all, there of the Word. John 1.1 told us about the Word. It was what we considered last Lord's Day morning. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Here, the Word is very God of very God, containing all the attributes and the characteristics of, of deity. He is the eternal Word of the Father. The one God, and yet existing with the Father and the Spirit eternally as one of the eternal persons of the, of the triune Godhead. It is this word that is spoken of in John 1.14. Indeed, one of the greatest things that we can say about this word is that the word is utterly unlike us. He is God, and we are not. He is the eternal God, the Word. But it then tells us that this Word then became, became flesh. You notice that the Word, that, that we're not told here that the Word merely appeared as flesh or seemed to be flesh. The incarnation is different from all the theophanies or the appearances of God in the Old Testament. Remember, uh, for example, that when God appeared to Moses in that burning bush, he spoke to him. It was an appearance of God, but God didn't become the burning bush. But oh, how different the incarnation is. For here we read that the word, the eternal God, actually became took to himself a true humanity. The divine Son of God truly became man. So the Word became, and then we're told, flesh. Flesh. Well, this word flesh doesn't merely describe the physical or fleshly part of our being, but rather as a way of describing humanity in all of its totality as body and soul. It means that when the Word became flesh, He took to Himself a true and full human nature with all that that means. That the Lord Jesus has real human thoughts, and feels real human emotions, and makes real human choices, and has a real human body. In his earthly ministry, it means that the Lord Jesus, as a man, did all the kinds of things that you and I are accustomed to doing. As a carpenter, he built things with his hands. He is one who would have picked up food and smelled it and tasted it on his tongue and swallowed it like you and I do. And he would have enjoyed eating. He was one who would have felt the full range of human emotions that you and I feel. Happiness and sadness and disappointment. He would have learned things, even including Scripture, in the way that you and I learn things. He would have had conversations 
He would have run. He would have laughed. He would have jumped. He would have slept. He did everything that you and I did with one thing accepted. And that is that He never sinned. The Holy Ghost specially formed His human nature, overshadowing uh, 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 Mary in her womb, that, he was, that Jesus Christ was then free from the taint of original sin. He was one who was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. But a true human nature He had. The Word became flesh. Now in saying this, please understand that He didn't cease to be God. That the incarnation is not so much a matter of subtraction. He never took away His divine nature as it is a matter of addition. The eternal divine person of the Son of God took to Himself a true, real human nature. So this one person now has two natures, a divine nature and a human nature forever. And his humanity doesn't become divine. His deity doesn't become human. He acts according to each nature with no mixture between them. And yet he is not two persons, but he is one, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what theologians call the hypostatic union. Two natures in his one person. Now I would give you a metaphor to try to help you understand it, except that there are no metaphors that could be given. All metaphors break down. There's no other instance anywhere of what we're talking about. We can't put our heads fully around it. How are these two natures related to each other in the one person of Christ? Well, dear friends, all that we can do is to stop and believe and wonder and adore. You know, I'm thankful for one that there are some things in the Bible that I can't fully comprehend. It reminds me that I'm not God and that He is. This is what 1 Timothy 3.16 says, Great is the mystery of godliness. God manifest in the flesh. But it's what the Scriptures so clearly teach. The Word became flesh. The truth of the Incarnation. But secondly, now, I want us to consider the reason for the Incarnation. Why was it that the Word became uh, flesh? You know, in, in our day, Jesus is frequently being uh, remade and reinterpreted. Uh, some view Jesus as simply an important ethical teacher. Uh, others see him as a kind of political revolutionary. Uh, yet others see him as an inspiring personal example. Or worse yet, uh, Jesus is viewed as uh, your way of uh, connecting with God. And, well, other religions, other people, they have their own way of connecting with God. Jesus works for you, that's great. doesn't work for everyone. 
Well, dear friends, if that's all that Jesus is, any of the things that we've mentioned, if that's all that Jesus is, there is no reason that he had to be the incarnate God-man. He didn't need to be anything more than a mere a human. The incarnation is not at all necessary if that's all that Jesus is. But the scriptures tell us that there is an entirely different reason for Jesus' coming. Let me just uh, list a few scriptures. John 1 and verse 21. We, excuse me, uh, Matthew 1 and verse 21. We read it earlier uh, in our scripture reading where the angel tells, uh, uh, tells Mary that she is going to bear a son and you shall, or tells Joseph that she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will, what is he coming to do? He will save his people from their sins. That's why Jesus came. Or Hebrews 2, 14 through 17. Since therefore the children, that's you and me, share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Christ, likewise partook of the same things. Christ partook of our flesh and blood. Why? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Why? so that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation, that is, to become the wrath-bearer through his sacrifice on the cross for the sins of his people. Or let me give you another verse, John 6, 38 and 39. You remember we're asking the question, why, why did Jesus have to become incarnate. Why did he come into this world? John 6, 38 and 39 says, For Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven. Why, Jesus? Why were you sent? Why did you come down? He says, Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. He has come to become the Savior of a people. Or John 10 and verse 11. Here also we read of why Jesus was sent, of who he is, what he's come to do. John 10 and verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Well, friends, we could spend the rest of our time today multiplying these passages which speak of the real reason that Jesus came into the world. But the answer is simply this, that he came as the Savior, the high priest, the mediator between God and man, the one who came to rescue a people who were held under sin's dominion and to reconcile them to God. He has come to bring Adam's ruined race to new life. 
He has come to restore a ruined creation, to redeem a people. That's why He has come. He has come to fulfill, as we saw last Sunday night, the covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son to redeem a people for Himself. This is why Jesus came into the world. This is why He came as a a man. It is to be a mediator. And friends, if this is why Jesus came, well, it is to do this work that He must be both God and man. His unique person is necessary for His unique saving work. If this is why Jesus came, He must be then both God and man, to accomplish this salvation. Actually, our larger catechism is so incredibly helpful at this point. Um, I'm going to read just two questions and answers out of our larger catechism. If you want to turn there and look for yourself, it's on page 943 of your Psalter hymnals. Page 943 And it's larger catechism, 38 and 39. And there, in our catechism, number 38, it asks this all-important question. Well, why was it requisite that the mediator should be God? Why was it needful that the mediator be God? The answer is this, that it was requisite that the mediator should be God, that he might sustain and keep the human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death. It was to give worth and efficacy to his sufferings, obedience, and intercession, and to satisfy God's justice, procure his favor, purchase a peculiar people, give his spirit to them, conquer all their enemies, and bring them to everlasting salvation. Do you see what this is saying? That if Jesus were to, if Jesus has come for our salvation, then he needs to be God for all of those reasons. That no one less than God could accomplish our salvation. No one less than God could by his death actually uh, uh, suffer for the sins of others. No one but God could ultimately be interceding for us in heaven. No one but God could send his spirit to us. No one but God could become the king who is conquering all of our enemies. We need Jesus to be God, to be our Savior. But then it goes on, verse or question 39. Why was it requisite that the mediator should be man? Why can't he only be God? Why does he also need to be man? And the answer there is simply this, that it was requisite that the mediator should be man, that he might advance our nature, perform obedience to the law, suffer and make intercession for us in our nature, 
have a fellow feeling of our infirmities, that we might receive the adoption of sons and have comfort and access with boldness unto the throne of grace. Do you see what he's saying there? Since it was man who sinned, the one who pays for our sins himself must be man, performing the obedience to the law that we failed to provide. And even now as the high priest, he is one who is not separate from us, but has a human nature like ours and a fellow feeling of our infirmities. He is the Son We are now the adopted sons in Jesus Christ. Do you see what it's saying there? It is saying that for Him to be our Savior, He needs also to be man. And So, the one who is the God-man is the God-man to do this saving work. We can return to our text here in verse 14. I think there's a hint of this when we're told, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt among us. That little phrase, dwelt among us, actually means tabernacled among us. And it ought to evoke in our own minds images of the Old Testament. You remember the tabernacle during the wilderness wanderings was called the tent of meeting because it was the place in which the eternal God came and lived among His people. It was the place where sacrifices were offered, where priestly service was rendered, where God's people knew the reconciliation and fellowship with a living God. And the answer is now, how can we know that kind of reconciliation and fellowship with God? It is through Jesus Christ who has come and tabernacled, dwelt among us. In Jesus Christ, God draws near In Jesus Christ, mankind is saved and reconciled to God. In Jesus Christ, that is the Word made flesh, the God-man, in Him and in Him alone, can we actually come to know God, whom to know is life itself. Oh, friends, what a wonder it is that this Word became flesh because it was absolutely necessary for your salvation and for mine. The truth of the Incarnation, the reason for the Incarnation. But now, third and finally, I want us to consider this morning the glory of the Incarnation. The glory of the Incarnation. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, it's so interesting to think that John, as he writes these words, writes these words as one who actually saw Jesus in the flesh. He spoke with Jesus. He ate with Jesus. He heard Jesus teach. He saw Jesus perform miracles. John stood by at the cross when Jesus was crucified. John entered the empty tomb after Jesus had been risen. 
he encountered the risen Christ. And it is this John who lived with this Jesus and beheld him and saw him and was with him. It is this Jesus who now could say in John 1.14, This one, this one has glory. In him I see displayed the perfections and the beauty and the greatness of none other but God Himself. And John can say, it is that in Jesus Christ, that grace and truth come. He is full of grace and truth. In Jesus Christ, we receive God's grace and we find God's truth. What a remarkable statement this is. Do you know that not everyone who saw Jesus Christ in the flesh recognized his glory? The Jewish crowd certainly didn't. They were kind of fickle, fair-weather fans, weren't they? As long as Jesus did something for them or performed, kind of wowed them with some miracle, they were interested, but then soon left him and were willing to crucify him on that later day. The Pharisees didn't really see Christ's glory. Uh, They were too obsessed with themselves and establishing their own self-righteousness. Herod didn't see Christ's glory. Neither did Pilate. Uh, Each was interested in political power. There were many, in fact most even, who saw Christ in the flesh did not behold in him the glory of God. But there were some who did recognize his glory. There were certain shepherds in the field who did. There were wise men from the east who came and offered gifts to this Christ child. There was a man named Simeon and an old woman named Anna who saw in this one the glory of God. There were a set of siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who came to acknowledge the glory of this Christ. There were some fishermen who heard Jesus' voice and left their nets and followed him because they saw something of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. There was a tax collector named Matthew who came to worship him. There was even a thief on the cross who, while being crucified next to the Lord, witnessed in this one the very glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And so all of us, all of this reminds us that the key thing, that the key thing is not whether we saw Jesus in the flesh during his earthly ministry. Some who saw him in the flesh beheld his glory and acknowledged it. And there were others who saw him in the flesh who did not. But rather the key thing for you and for me is this. Do we have the eyes of faith 
to see him and to worship him for who he is. The key thing is, do we have, as it were, the spiritual eyesight to behold in this Jesus Christ, who was not only for a time during his earthly ministry, the Word made flesh, but who even now is reigning from the right hand of the Father, still the Word made flesh, God and man, two distinct natures, one glorious person, the Lord Jesus. And the key question is, do you and I have the eyes of faith to behold in Him glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth? 2 Corinthians 4.6 gets it right when it said, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the all-glorious one. The question is, are you one who is beholding that glory? Do you see him as the one who is full of grace and truth? Has the Holy Spirit so opened your eyes to behold the greatness of this Savior? Are you going to be one who takes takes your place alongside of those shepherds and wise men and Anna and Simeon and those early disciples and Lazarus and Mary and Martha and the thief on the cross and the countless others throughout human history who have come and worshipped before this God-man? Are you one who sees in him the glory of the living God. And do you worship him? We beheld his glory, John says. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I just want to end today by just giving to you just three brief words of application, and then we'll be done. Three brief words of application concerning Christ's wonderful person. And the first is this, is this to simply say that Christ's wonderful person is a doctrine that is worth defending. Here is a doctrine that is worth defending. You know, in our day, doctrine is looked down upon. Do these things really matter? It all seems so obtuse. The Trinity... Two natures of Jesus Christ, justification. Do these things make any difference at all? Can't religion just be about making us better people? That's what people say, right? Why can't we just leave those doctrines behind? Why can't religion just be about making us better people? Well, dear friends, the reason is this, is that it is that true religion is about God saving sinners. And friends, as we have seen today, there can be no salvation apart from the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. If he is not God and man, then you and I cannot be saved. And so friends, here is doctrine that matters, and matters immensely. Hold on to it, cleave to it, believe in it all the days of your life. 
So Christ's wonderful person is a doctrine worth defending. The second application is this, is that Christ's wonderful person calls for your worship and adoration. Christ's wonderful person calls for your worship and adoration. One of the things that is clear in the scriptures is that regarding the person of Jesus Christ, you are either for him or you are against him, and there is not some middle way. Jesus Christ can't have a little corner of your life. Just a little sideline place in your life. Either you worship and adore this one who is the Word made flesh, or you are against him. That's the testimony of Scripture. And what I want to call each one of you today to do is to worship and adore this glorious person of Christ that we have seen today. Is he at the center of your life? Is it your greatest desire to know more of him? Him and all of his glory and splendor. Him and all of his saving work. Him and all of his compassion and love. Him and all of his beauty. Is Jesus Christ the great end and object of your life, to know Him. Young people, is that the great desire of your life, that you would come to know Jesus Christ? Oh, friends, Christ's wonderful person calls for your worship and adoration. But now the third application I want to make is this. It is that Christ's wonderful person is the constant help and support for believers. Christ's wonderful person is the constant help and support for believers. This one that we have been describing today, the Word made flesh, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, is none other than your Savior, your High Priest, the one who has died for you. He is The vine, you are the branches. He is the head, you are his body. You are united to him in close fellowship. He is your savior. And that means that all that he is, in both his deity and his humanity, he is for you, dear believer. And so, when you are downtrodden and despairing and discouraged, Go to Him who has fellow feeling with your infirmities. When you feel like your sins are too great, that the Lord could never save one such as you, go to Him who is none other than the mighty God who is able to save to the uttermost. Dear friends, when you are tempted... You can remember that he was tempted like as you are. You go to him for help in your time of need. You see that there is nothing that you need in this life that you cannot get from the Lord Jesus Christ. And come to know him in all of his sufficiency, all of his fullness. Come to know Jesus Christ more and more. In his deity, in his humanity. He is the one that you need above all. He is a constant help and a support for believers. The Word became flesh 
and dwelt among us, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this amazing truth, this good news that Christ is incarnate for us. The God-man, our Savior, the glorious one. We do pray today, O Lord, our God, that these would be glorious, wonderful truths for us, that we would receive these things with faith, that we would worship and adore the one who is the God-man for us, that we would marvel at the word made flesh. Lord, that you would be all of our hope and all of our desire. This Christmas season, Lord, it is our desire above all that we would be drawn closer to the Lord Jesus, the Word made flesh for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name.